I was talking to um, Lindsay, I don't know, several weeks ago. She said, which, which, what are you preaching on? And I said, judges. And I was really excited, and her countenance completely dropped. And she's like, oh, I'm sorry. And I thought, what have I gotten myself into? Anyways, uh, my name's Paul Anglin. Uh, like Andrew said, I'm on the leadership team here at Two Rivers. Uh, vocationally, I'm an airline pilot. I spent my first 10 years flying uh, in the Marine Corps. And then got out, got hired by Southwest, been doing that now for about 30 years. Um, been married to my beautiful wife, Kathy, for coming up on 35 years. If you have a child three years old or younger, they know her. Okay, she's in children's ministry right now, working. Um, I have three married older kids. Um, one lives in Denver with his wife. The other two are out in uh, kind of the Portland, Oregon area. And we're expecting our first grandchild. Uh, so that, yeah, it's pretty exciting. So that's uh, in November. That I'm sure is going to change our lives. Um, you saw the video, quick overview. For those of you who are new, uh, this summer gave Jason a little bit of some time off, kind of a semi-sabbatical. And so people on the teaching team, leadership team, come up to teach. Um, this is my first time doing it. I, I will warn you with that. In any event, we're doing a, uh, a series, Abe to Dave, so Abraham to King David. What we're doing basically is a quick flyover while looking at key characters who played a major role in the unveiling of God's pursuit of mankind. So we're moving from a chosen family, beginning with Abraham, grows to a chosen nation, Israel, evolved, wonderfully became a chosen people of which we as followers of Jesus are a part of. So the Old Testament is a family history. Uh, it's God's salvation history. It's the record of his unrelenting pursuit of mankind. Knowing this foundational story helps us understand the New Testament, and it gives us a context for understanding grace. So our goal in doing this is to help us see the revelation of God's heart and character embodied in Jesus throughout the Old Testament. So real quick, a roadmap of where we're going to go today. Uh, first off, the Old Testament. Why read it? A couple of thoughts on how to read it, especially with the book of Judges. Um, then we're going to take a look at the book of Judges, the dark history, and the pattern, the cycle that develops there. And then we're going to kind of take a little bit of a closer look at Gideon, one of the judges, take a look at his conversation with God, how he fits into this pattern, and then the fallout of his leadership. So what I want us to keep in mind as we go through all of this is the Father's heart. The Father's heart. What does God's heart look like? How is it revealed in the book of Judges? How is it manifested in Gideon's story? And how might God respond to us in our human struggle? Well, I kind of jokingly said earlier that this period of the period of Judges, 350 to 400 years, I've got 35 to 40 minutes. That's a minute a decade. So hang on. Um, let me pray real quick, and then we'll, we'll jump right into it. Father, ah, gosh, thank you so much for this time this morning. I thank you for, um, for the people that are here that want to hear your word. I thank you for guiding me in preparation for this. Um, Father, it is our heart that we hear you and that we know you. Father, we're thankful that you are revealed throughout the entire Testament of the Scriptures. 
Father, pray that you would speak to us where we are this morning. We all come here in different stages of life, different situations going on. So, Father, just pray that you would speak very uniquely and very individually to us through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's jump in. Uh, Part one, Old Testament, why read it? Just four, I'm sure there are a ton of reasons. Let me just offer you four reasons to consider when you start thinking about reading the Old Testament. Um, This is Jesus' source material, okay? It's the Bible Jesus read. It's the one he's familiar with. Everything he spoke about, everything he thought about and did was informed and directed by his understanding and his fulfillment in these texts. So things like, it is written, have you not read? Or when he refers to the law and the prophets, all of those references in the New Testament, he's referencing the Hebrew scriptures, Right? You remember when an expert of the law comes in and says, teacher, which one of the commandments is the greatest, the greatest in the law? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like this, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. What does he mean? The entire Old Testament Hebrew Bible hangs on those commands. So he's referring to and he's validating the authority of the entire Hebrew Bible. Another reason of the New Testament authors. So I'll just give you one example, but it is the New Testament is chock full of them, as many of you know. But the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, he says, from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures. He's talking about the Hebrew text, which are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God, and it goes on. But again, when he's referring to that, he's referring primarily to the Hebrew text. Third reason, the hyperlinks. 27 books in the New Testament. In those 27 books, there are 300 hyperlinks or references to the Old Testament. These references are consistently used by the New Testament authors to explain, clarify, and illuminate what they're trying to communicate. So let me just give you an example. As a pilot, we've all now moved to electronic flight bags. There's no paper in the cockpit. I've got an iPad. I've got, I don't even know, countless manuals on there, okay? Um, But in most of those manuals, I'll be reading down a page and there'll be a blue tab there with a hyperlink to something else. So when they put these manuals together, they're assuming that I know that linked information, and if I'm not readily familiar with it, that I'm going to click on that link and read it and reference that because that gives context to what I'm presently reading. The Bible really is no different in that sense. The writers of the New Testament knew that their audience needed to have a working knowledge of this overarching storyline, so they pull in these Old Testament texts that give the New Testament shape and texture. Another thought on hyperlinks. Every book of the Old Testament, with the exception of Ezra and Nehemiah, which is one in the Hebrew Bible, not two, and Esther is quoted by the New Testament authors. So 36 of the 39 are quoted in the New Testament. Again, these references are consistently used by these New Testament writers and authors to explain, clarify, and illuminate what they're currently communicating. And then finally, fourth reason, 
is the testimony of historical Christianity. So there's no historical evidence that the early Christians wanted to reject any of the Old Testament. Nothing in their teaching or preaching suggests any incompatibility between the old and the new. They viewed it as one cohesive story leading to Jesus. In fact, even in the book of Acts, you might remember the Apostle Paul reasoning with the Jews. It says, from the scriptures. They're not reading New Testament stuff. Most of it probably hadn't been written by then. He's referring to the Hebrew Bible, and he's explaining and revealing Jesus through the Hebrew Bible to the Jews. The early Christians, the early church, read the Old Testament through the lens of its fulfillment in Jesus. They did disagree with some of the Jewish traditions, but they didn't disagree with the scriptures. So those are a few reasons that we might want to consider diving into the Old Testament. But let me summarize this by saying we have really good reasons to read the Old Testament, and we have no good reasons not to. With that in mind, I want to acknowledge that for many of us, the Old Testament can sometimes feel like an uncomfortable place to venture into. So let me offer a couple of thoughts on that. Um, and I, I wonder if, if part of the problem is, is that we hold an inconsistent view of God. So let me explain. In our small group last semester, we did a book, read a chapter. It's talking about how we view God or what God is like. And we did this exercise where we wrote down, uh, the question was asked, you know, what are the words you think of when you think of God the Father or think of God in the Old Testament? And write down those words. Then on the other side, it's like, okay, well now, what words come to mind when you think about Jesus in the Gospels? I was surprised because when I did it, I thought, oh, I kind of got this. I got a good view of God. And I did it, and I was surprised that there was definitely inconsistencies in how I viewed God in the Old Testament from how I saw Jesus in the New. So I think we just need to come to the Old Testament with that recognition that we might have some inconsistencies on our view of God. But what we need to remember is that the Father's heart and character are embodied in So as we look at God the Father in the old, we keep in mind that he is Christ-like in every way. There is no way in which he's not Christ-like. There's no incongruity in his nature couple of passages, a couple of things that Jesus says. John's gospel, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Later in John's gospel, he says, the one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. And in Hebrews, it says, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So what Jesus is saying, among, among other things, is that when you see me, you see the Father, and when you see the Father, you're seeing me. I represent the Father's heart. Another thought as you begin reading the Old Testament. Don't go wandering through the Old Testament without Jesus. A friend shared that with me recently, and I thought, that's really good advice. So when you go there in prayer, ask Jesus to walk through it with you. So I think we just need to keep in mind that the Jesus we see in the Gospels, 
can help us see the heart of the Father as we read through the Old Testament. Okay, with that before our minds, uh, let's wade into the book of Judges. It's the darkest, most disturbing, at times horrific narrative in the Old Testament. This is not flannel board material. Um, And I would just say, read it at your own risk. If you finish with Gideon's story and don't go beyond that, you're doing good. So let me give you a little bit of context. This summer, we've already come through the first five books of the Bible, and then Joshua, we've read the Torah in the Greek, it's the Pentateuch. Talked about this chosen person, Abraham, chosen family, chosen nation, Israel. And now this nation is trying to establish itself in the promised land. The book of Judges is the earliest history of their nation-building enterprise. They've wandered in the desert under the leadership of Moses. That mantle of leadership gets passed on to Joshua. And when Joshua dies, the mantle of leadership gets passed on to no one in particular. It actually gets passed on to this system of judges known as Shoftim. Now, when you hear that word judges, don't think lawyers. Don't think legal system. It's not like that at all, okay? This is a system of tribal elders, warlords, chieftains. That's a little bit more what this is actually like. Okay, so led by these tribal elders, uh, the tribes go out and take possession of the land. So keep that governing structure in mind on one hand. The other thing to keep in mind is to recall the warning passages. Okay, so Moses gives this warning to the people before they cross the River Jordan. Joshua gives a similar warning um, before he dies. Both of those warning passages cover the blessings and the curses. The blessings for the people if they remain faithful in their covenant to God and don't fall away and follow after Canaanite gods. Then there's curses for disobedience. Fundamentally, that disobedience is falling away from God and worshiping other gods, worshiping idols, the gods of the Canaanites. Well, when you think of these warning passages, um, think red sign warnings. Remember that, like, I was talking about? They're all over it, right? It'll say things like, like, seriously, it's like bold caps, red letters, warning. Failure to follow this procedure can result in hull loss. That just means crash the airplane or loss of life. Okay, so we have to follow those procedures. Okay, these guys are saying the same thing. Like if you don't follow what I'm telling you today, it is not going to go well with you. Okay, Um, let me just, I want to read kind of just the the last portion. One of the things that Joshua says to the people. Um, It's almost as if he knows what's going to happen. Right, so Joshua, as he's addressing the people, he says, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in which you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And they respond enthusiastically, far be it from us to forsake the Lord and serve other gods. 
He's like, all right. And he kind of gives them another little warning. And they're like, no, no, we will serve the Lord. Gives them another little warning. And they're just adamantly, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him only. Kind of sounds like my kids sometimes when they were kids. But anyways, um, even in the midst of these warning passages with these promises of blessings and curses, as beautiful and as terrifying as they are, still the heart of God, the Father's heart, is revealed. So there's this passage in Deuteronomy. It's 325 or, no, 3235, excuse me. So Moses is assuming that they're going to wander from the Lord and worship other gods, and it's not going to go well. But then he tells them, when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything that I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. Then he goes beyond that. He says, he will make you more prosperous and more numerous than your father's. So even coming out of this curse, the blessings will be abundant when they return to the Father. That's the Father's heart. He's faithful even when we are unfaithful. So there's a reason why these blessings and curses are stated so strongly and repeatedly. Remember, this is God's chosen name. So we ask, what are they chosen for? Why are they chosen? chosen to make his name known among the nations. Remember, Israel was blessed to be a blessing, and God promised that they would be a light to the nations. And for that reason, God is going to remain faithful to his promises and never give up on any of his children, ever. Well, the people go out into the land taking possession, tribe by tribe, led by this shuf team, begin this nation-building process. And very quickly, uh, in the book of Judges, we see this pattern start to develop. So I'm just going to read you a couple of sections of scripture right from the beginning of the story. It's in Judges 2, and you'll see this pattern develop right away. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders of, of uh, I'm sorry, the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers. And the Lord handed, going down to verse 14, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around whom they were no longer able to resist. And they were in great distress. And then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. So let me just draw for you here real quickly this pattern. Super, super simple actually. I'm going to put it here in the middle of the board so I hope you guys can see it up there. But this is the pattern that we see develop in the book of Judges and it gets repeated several times. So the people fall into sin, apostasy, think spiritual adultery is basically what it is. They're following after other gods. They suffer from oppression. 
end up many times in slavery. Then they get to a point in their journey where they realize, holy smokes, we cannot deliver ourselves. So they cry out to God. God hears their cries. He sends a deliverer who then delivers them from their enemies. And then they have peace and rest during the lifetime of that deliverer. And when that deliverer dies, what do you think the people do? Fall back into following after God's other gods, back into sin, and the pattern repeats itself over and over again. What I find most remarkable about this pattern is the father's heart. He hears their cries and rescues them again and again and again. So it just makes me think, like, how many times, how many times is he going to do this? Like, this is the consequence of their sin, right? How many times would we rescue someone who makes the same mistake over and over and over again? Um, so many years ago, Kathy and I, I don't know if I mentioned it, but we moved here like five years ago from Maryland. Um, back in Maryland, we had a, a, we lived on a farm, had a big farmhouse, um, and in our, you can imagine old homes, this thing had five staircases and eight doors to the outside. So at the time, one of our sons, a uh, teenager, was making some really bad choices, and we knew it. We knew he was sneaking out at night, and I was like, there's no way we're catching him. Like, there, there's too many exit, there's too many ways. Like, like we're not going to catch him. We're not posting sentries. It's not going to happen. So it really in desperation, I mean, literally, Kathy and I would just say, Lord, just show us what we need to see. Like, we know this is going bad. But you don't know what to do. Show us. Well, one night at three, <laughs> at three in the morning, the phone rings. Of course, I just like, you know, jump out of bed, you know, to the phone. And I hear this faint voice on the other end. And it's my son. And he's like, Dad, help. I'm outside. So I just go, I just go sprinting down the hall calling his name, right? So I think I, your parents, those of you that are parents at least, you would respond the same way. That is the heart of the father. He hears the cries of his children, and he responds. Well, as this period of Judges continues, um, as I mentioned, the pattern is repetitive, but it, it takes one dark turn after another, and, it, and it, it, it ends up looking like just this downhill spiral. Okay, so with each following judge... The people get further from God. The judge is more corrupt. Everything goes downhill. And it ends up just this society. There's no society. It's just lawlessness and chaos. Um, a total failure of the nation of Israel. Anarchy. It's really bad. And the story is graphic. Um, but even in this messy story, there are a few bright spots, though they are few and isolated. But I want to take a look at, at one judge in particular, Gideon. Um, he's one of the better judges, uh, but that does not solve 
that he's being lifted up as an example to us. None of the judges are lifted up as examples of characters to follow. Gideon, uh, the story of Gideon, three chapters in Judges, so he gets the most airtime in the book. It's probably the largest story um, for his faith. Some of you may know he gets a mention in Hebrews 11 in that Faith Hall of Fame. There's a reason for that we can't go totally into. But sadly, Gideon also represents a really dark turning point in this story of the period of the Judges. So Gideon's story begins uh, during a time when the people are being oppressed by the Midianites and the people recognize that they're completely helpless to save themselves, so they cry out to God. God hears their cries. He sends this deliverer. He calls Gideon. Um, I mean, before we go further, um, I find it helpful in reading these narratives, imagine myself there, whether I'm an observer one of the characters in the story. Either way, just imagine that you are in that story, okay? And think to yourself, what would I do? How would I respond? What is going on around me? You can also think, what about this story resonates with my story today? It's important that we enter into that story. So I want to invite you to, tr- to do that as we kind of press through this. Um, so here's Gideon, a uh, young man. He grew up in a generation that didn't know God. They had never seen God perform a miracle. He wasn't around when the plague struck Egypt, didn't walk across the Red Sea on dry ground, didn't see manna rain down from heaven. All of these stories that were fixed to the first generation to him They are tales and fables told around the campfire. They're stories. They're great stories, but they're stories nonetheless. Gideon is the product of being raised in a secular world where there are many gods. And in fact, he lives under the shadow of an Asherah pole, which is an altar to a foreign god that his father kind of, that's at their house. The community Asherah pole is at Gideon's house. So that's what he's growing up with. Can any of you guys relate to that? Maybe not the Asherah pole. Um, I, I mean, I grew up going to Sunday school as a kid, at least for a few years, but I can tell you there was nothing about what I was learning that matched anything in my household. None of that was applied or taken seriously, if you will. Well, so Gideon is... Kind of a cowardly guy, Um, but through this interaction that he has with God, you'll notice in the story that he gains courage. He finally acts in faith and obedience. And because of that, he witnesses God's faithfulness and God's power and God's love. Again, this is in Judges 6 through 8. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase and tell you the story. Um, So it begins with Gideon hiding in a wine press, threshing out wheat, and he's starving. You're not going to do that out in the open because that's what the Midianites do. They kill all the livestock. They steal all the food. They go back up into the hills. The people are starving. They have nothing. So he's hiding in there, and an angel of the Lord appears to him and says, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. (sighs) This is Gideon he's talking to. And Gideon basically says, If you are 
and all the stories that I've heard are true, why is this happening to us? The angel doesn't respond to his question. The angel just simply says, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? This is where you get this great feeling of cognitive dissonance, right? Angel of the Lord is saying one thing. Gideon's life experience is exactly the opposite. He's not courageous. He has no might. I don't know about you, but sometimes, honestly, as I'm reading the New Testament and I see all the promises of God, sometimes my life doesn't exactly line up with those promises. So sometimes I experience that same kind of feeling that maybe Gideon experienced. Well, Gideon makes this kind of same basic excuse that Moses made, right? Moses, he's like, I don't know how to talk. And Gideon's like, who am I? I can't do that. I'm not capable. I'm from the smallest tribe and the weakest family, and I'm the youngest, and all these excuses. But Gideon's out of ideas. And so he's intrigued enough by what the angel of the Lord is saying to him that he pursues the conversation because his desire to not be starving anymore is pretty strong. So he engages, and he says, is this really God? Can he help us? Will he help us? Gideon's at the proverbial end of his rope, and he's out of ideas. So he, he does. He continues to engage, but he's not sure yet. So he comes up with a couple of tests to test this angel of the Lord. The first one, he makes a meal, brings it to the angel of the Lord, touches it with his staff. The whole thing burns up. Gideon falls on his face, surely this is the Lord. Get up, you're going to be okay, I'm not, you're not going to die. So Gideon knows that he is dealing with God at this point. So the spear of the Lord comes upon Gideon. He gets an infusion of courage. He's able to raise up an army of about 32,000 men. Not great odds against the Midianite, 135,000. And he's still not convinced of the outcome. So he basically tests God again. Does the whole episode of, I'm going to out, you know, in the morning if the ground's wet and the fleece is dry, I'll know. God does it, does the opposite, puts out the fleece. If the ground is dry and the fleece is wet, I'll know. God does it. And think about it. God is, God is, God's like, I think he's cool with that. Gideon has no idea who this is. He, knows, he hasn't grown up in this culture. These aren't bad tests. Gideon just needs to know, is this really God? And is he really going to deliver us? So that's kind of what's happening here. So finally, Gideon's convinced, not necessarily of victory, but he knows that this is God and he's willing to follow him. So God, not wanting Gideon or anybody else for that matter to think that they're winning by their own power, shrinks Gideon's forces from 23,000 down to 300. This isn't a test for Gideon. Don't think that God is testing Gideon now. He's not. God just wants Gideon to know him. And when he sees his power and his might, he will know who God is. The Father's heart wants to be known. 
I almost think more than anything, God wants us to know him. Well, in an unsolicited move on the evening before the battle, God comes to Gideon and gives him a peek behind the curtain. So he says to Gideon, basically, hey, if you're still like afraid, come with me. So he takes Gideon down to the camp. Gideon overhears a couple of Midianite soldiers talking where one tells the other a dream about a barley loaf or something rolling down the hill and knocking over a tent. And the other guy's like, oh my gosh, surely this is Gideon's army. The Lord is giving us into the hand of Gideon. And it says in the text that Gideon is greatly encouraged. This is another generous display of the father's heart. Just his kindness and his love and wanting to completely alleviate Gideon's fears. So with 300 men, uh, trumpets in one hand, torches hidden in clay pots in the other, uh, Gideon and his men go out, and they completely rout the Midianite army. Certainly an unconventional approach to warfare. You know, that, that night that I, that I ran outside and when I got that phone call, I mean, I had no idea what I was going to find when I ran outside. Um, so I, I went out and, and again, and I saw him standing down on the driveway. And I'm like, what are you doing? And then a full confession came out. Like he told me everything that he had done. <laughs> I'm just standing there. And then he's like, he's like, Dad, Joe doesn't recognize me and he won't let me back on the property. Every time I move, he growls. Dad, just grab the dog. So I, I just walked over and grabbed our great Pyrenees by the collar, and my son took off. I stood there just going, what on earth just happened? Not a strategy for catching your kid. Wow. So here's Gideon. One minute he's starving, frightened, hiding, threshing out wheat in a wine press. The next minute he's face to face with the angel of the Lord. He's walking with God, this God that he's heard the stories about, who rescues and delivers. He's learning about trust and faith, and he has a front row seat to the faithfulness and power of God. In fact, Gideon is living just in this relational space with God in conversation, really in this sweet spot. That's where Gideon is living. Unfortunately, things don't go well after the victory. And that's when the whole story really takes a turn for the worse. So after this victorious military campaign, um, it just becomes a story of revenge killings, um, just a really brutal, ruthless leader. The people want to make him king. He declines the offer, but then he starts living like a king. Takes 70 wives, takes tons of riches and wealth. He names his first son Abimelech. Does anybody knows what Abimelech, know what Abimelech means? It means my father is king. 
And then, in an episode reminiscent of the golden calf at Mount Sinai, Gideon takes the people, give him all these jewels, he melts them down, he makes an ephod, it's just this priestly garment vest, it becomes an idol to the people, and they worship that, and he sets it up at his house, just like his father did. And then the scriptures say, all Israel prostituted themselves to it by worshiping it, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So let me ask you a question. Um, What do you think about Gideon now? How did he get so distracted? Was it pride, a lack of gratitude, desire for power, or were things going so well in his life he just didn't need God anymore? And those kinds of things always make me wonder, what, what, what distracts me away from God? Is it wealth? Is it power? Is it popularity? Maybe it's just my comfort. I don't feel a need for God sometimes. I don't know. One of the things about Gideon, he successfully delivers the people from their enemies, but in his distraction, he fails to deliver them back to God, and they end up back where they began. The point of deliverance is twofold. It's from the enemies, from slavery, to God. From slavery back to faithful covenant living. So Gideon gets distracted, never finishes. And before long, the people are way worse off than they were before. I mentioned earlier that Gideon's a turning point in the story. What happens after Gideon's story is several significant things happen. Um, They end up in civil war. Never again in the text does it say that they had rest. Okay, so there's no rest. Uh, They never cry out to God again. Trust me, they complain, but they're not crying out to Yahweh. Never again are they delivered. Other judges are raised up, but never does it say that they were delivered from the people that are oppressing them. Uh, The story, again, it's, it's really bad. It's really horrible. It's Hard to believe some of this stuff is even written in in the Bible. Um, But they end up with a total collapse of society, anarchy, lawlessness, total chaos. And then it all ends in this really haunting closing verse. The last verse in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Clearly, the writer is implying that the people did really terrible things, and they did. But the fact that they did what was right in their own eyes is really not the problem. The problem is that what they were doing was not right in God's eyes. I have a quote from Dallas Willard where he says, doing what's right in one's own eyes is not opposed to doing what's right in God's eyes. Let me just give you a quick example. So I'm going back to work tomorrow. Let's just say I'm not flying to Honolulu, but let's say I am flying to Honolulu (laughs) tomorrow. Um, That's just where I want to be going tomorrow. Um, So I mentioned all these 
policies and procedures, all these manuals that we have. I know those manuals well. I've been doing this for a lot of years. Tomorrow when I go to work, I'm going to do what is right in my own eyes. Are you okay with that? It just so happens that everything I do is also right in the company's eyes. That's what they expect of me. Gideon, when he's looking in this sweet spot in conversation with God, even though it might be a short season for him, I think that everything Gideon did that was right in his own eyes was also right in God's eyes. It's another quote from Dallas Willard. And it says, to do as one pleases is the ideal condition of humanity, what is often called freedom. God has all along intended that we walk with him on a personal basis, be pleased by the right things, then do what is right in our own eyes. This is why we were made and what constitutes our individuality. When I first came across this, I had to think about this for a while. because That's not the way that I would have read the last or understood that last verse. Well, in this period of the judges, as dark and disturbing as the story is, we can clearly see the father's heart. We see his heart in his response to the cries of his children, our cries. We see it in his faithfulness to the unfaithful. We see it in his plans to rescue and restore us again and again and again. These are profound truths. Um, they're timeless. They span all of history from the patriarchs to the disciples, through the church age to us. And thankfully, none of that's ever going to change. But there is something more about the Father's heart, something that we need to take to heart. If you followed this series through all these characters and this overarching story, there's a common thread. There's a common thread. All of them experience a conversational interaction with God. All of them. So as you consider these stories, does it make you wonder, is it possible for us to walk with God on a personal basis? Is real conversational relationship with God available to us now? I'm convinced it is. I know that when we were at the end of our rope and out of, our out of ideas trying to keep kids alive, um, we prayed and we cried out to God. We found God providing in profound, practical, and even some very unorthodox ways. But aside from my own personal experiences with God, um, I, I think, you know, if I were an unbiased observer and I read this story, somebody say, hey, read this, what's it about? and I read the story, I would conclude that it's a story about a relationship first and foremost. An interactive, conversational relationship between God and mankind. And if I concluded that this story was fact, that it was true, then the answer would be totally obvious. Of course we can walk in a personal relationship with God. I mean, he seems as interested in his communicating with his kids as I am with mine. In fact, I would conclude that if, if it were any other way, in other words, if God now suddenly went silent, that, for me, would be far more shocking and difficult to wrap my head around. 
This is the Father's heart. He wants him. And he invites us into this divine friendship. So like Gideon, the other patriarchs, when we find that place, that sweet spot, that relational sweet spot, not only will we experience our deepest sense of freedom, we'll also find peace and rest for our souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for revealing yourself through the entirety of Scripture. Thank you for showing us Jesus, for showing us what you are like in flesh and blood so that it just gives us such an opportunity to go back and understand the whole story, the full story, and your efforts from the beginning of time to reconcile and bring us back into relationship with yourself. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for the, your word. In Jesus' name, amen.